Hello, and welcome to another mini-sode of Movies We Dig, the podcast about films, antiquity, and everything in between. I'm Christy Vogler. And I'm Hannah Bazinal. And today we're joined by host-turned-guest Colin McCormick. Today we'll take a quick look at episode six of Disney's Percy Jackson and the Olympians, a show adapted from Rick Riordan's 2005 book, The Lightning Thief. And sadly, this episode was no musical. It, it was not. Um, so, Colin... Thank you for joining us today. Welcome. Oh, hello. Thank you for having me on the show. Yeah, here you get applause on our show. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. It's fun to be on the other on the other end of it. Although it's all very kind of nurse the nepotistic, maybe is that the word? It's all just you yes. know, we're just guesting on our own show in <laughs> yeah. reverse. Aww. Yeah. You're yeah, a nepotism baby. Yeah. Truly. Right. Yeah. I love being a guest on my own show. I feel so lost now. I don't know where I am anymore. <laughs> Um, anyway, like usual, we'll be conducting a shovel test of this series by giving a brief overview of the episode and providing some information on the ancient sources from which Rorden drew on to tell these tales. Once the season wraps, we'll have Lige in here as well to discuss the series in its entirety. So we almost have the full crew today. Mm-hmm. So yeah, before we get started too much, Colin, since you were joining us about more than halfway through the season now, about two thirds of the way through, we just kind of want to know what's your history with Percy Jackson and what do you think of the Disney series so far? Not necessarily the episode, but just what you've seen so far. So I think my first exposure to the franchise as a whole, I think was the movie because the books, uh, I think the first book came out in what, 2005 or six or something like yep. that. And mm-hmm. uh, I think I was just at an age where I, so it sort of just missed me. So I didn't really learn about the series because I guess it probably also didn't get popular until a few years later. So I didn't really learn about the series, I think, until the movie was coming out. And then I sort of found out. And then one of my, my nibblings read the books. And so I've read, I think, the first, maybe first two books. Okay. I've seen both movies. And I also, since I often teach a, a sort of intro to Greek and Roman mythology course every semester uh, in which students will submit very often reviews and, and feedback. So that is kind of my main exposure to the franchise in addition to sort of it's been a while. I don't particularly remember the books. I know that I read it, but it's kind of also this thing in our field that like looms large and is hovering around and a lot of people that work either with myth or with classical reception and things like that are kind of aware of it and and you know it comes and goes it is this kind of inevitability right you've done more than me i've seen (laughs) one movie and i'm like yeah i'm good and and honestly i think that first movie with with logan lerman kind of soured me on it a little bit although it is joining the pantheon of many sort of popular franchises that sort of get kind of disabused in the movie theaters you know it reminds i get flashbacks of the aragon movie or Mm-hmm. The Avatar The Last Airbender movie, which I think had a sort of similar maybe mis- mistreatment by Hollywood. And a lot of those are all getting redone right now, too. Yes. Mm-hmm. Interesting to see. No, stern, no stone is left unturned, truly. <laughs> um, sometimes more than once. All right. So how's, how's Disney treating it? Have they done a better job? Yeah. And so in general, I th- I'm enjoying the, the series in part because it, it really does feel like the – more kind of true to spirit realization of of what the books were going for and what Riordan, the author, was trying to do. I find it enjoyable. It's it's tough because in some ways it's kind of a tough sell. One, because this is just I spend so much time and energy thinking about classical reception that sometimes I just kind of get in and over inundated with it. And I'm just like, I ah, just know more. And it's also kind of a tough sell because this is kind of a tough age, I think, for protagonists, right? They're right at that tween, early teen mm-hmm. cusp 
years, which can be to some kind of a it's, that, that's like a difficult protagonist to kind of latch on to that. Those, they can they can be annoying at that age, but I'm finding it more charming than I thought it was going to be and, and fun and sort of. You know, there's stuff, I think, here for us to talk about. Oh, yeah, for sure. All right. Well, with that being said, Hannah, can you give us a breakdown of episode? We're on episode six now. Dang. And if you dug this episode today. I dug it, but I don't think you did. You called it the forgettable episode. I Um, did. I did. Well, it's all about forgetting. I thought that was the pun, right? Yeah, that was the pun. Oh, damn. Mm -hmm. I didn't even pick that up. Sorry. That went over my head. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. It's okay, embarrassing no, now. Your, your first your first assessment of my reaction to it is fair. So let us know what you think. The kids go to Vegas after making heavy-handed remarks about Persebeth and hitting us over the head with, ah, uh, yes, young love, where they forget the other one exists. Annabeth pickpockets the god, which I admire the audacity of. And then cute little clip of my first driving lesson at the end. <laughs> I did enjoy that. Mm-hmm immensely like it, it did bring the horror of learning how to drive all over again and like mm-hmm. that's why you start in an open parking lot not a parking garage when he sees yeah. that tight turn he has to make i felt the horror of that moment all right well colin did you dig mm-hmm. this episode um all right so i guess we got to just get the elephant out of the room right away which is this is maybe the best or worst episode to have me on because Earlier in the series, there was a certain cameo, and I, when it came up, I immediately texted Christy and Eli about this. Of, I heard. I, I'm a little over, I think, Lin-Manuel Miranda. This was the Lin-Manuel episode. I was thinking a lot about their, I think it was Linda Holmes at NPR had an article that was talking about a recent episode, or I guess the most recent season of The Bear, mm-hmm. where if you're familiar with it, there's a lot of very sort of big cameos and and. There's this thinking about sort of when cameos are like the art of the cameo, right? When a, a good cameo that can sort of elevate a performance or, you know, there is a sort of weight that is brought to, you know, when it's a known sort of big name that shows up sort of in a sort of small role in a series like that and how it can kind of really help the story out. Uh, and like the story, you know, those kinds of cameos, the bear being a good example that sort of elevate and then the kinds of cameos that I think become distracting and i think this falls a little bit more into the latter camp because the whole time i'm like why is it lin-manuel miranda is it just because he's if it's if it is there some clause in the contract where if disney does a thing he gets to be involved is it you know is there a particular reason it's him is why is he hermes and Mm -hmm. that ends up kind of almost becoming it became distracting for me at a point so i think actually i'm cooler on this particular episode not just because of the cameo i think also this episode felt like less happened in it um then maybe it was a some, shorter episode some other too. Ones. yeah it so it felt a little i mean it may just be the the show like and maybe it seems like a natural dip for a series to kind of in the right before the ramp up to the sort of what i assume are they going to be the kind of last two are going to be some kind of escalating event so that takes a little dip before it picks picks up speed yeah and also because i liked the one before it a fair amount the one where they go to hephaestus land oh yeah water but, yeah. world water, water world, world exactly which yeah. is bringing flashbacks to a terrible, Kevin, yeah, Kevin Costner, a fantastic movie. Kevin Costner movie. Which is what if, the, which you know, <laughs> dared to ask, what if the world was water and Kevin Costner had gills yeah. and cigarettes for currency, and what if there was a map to dry land tattooed on your back? On, uh, uh, I'm sorry, a like what ten year old girl's back, not just anyone's back. So I don't know. What about you, Christy? I'm pretty much on board with you in that I think that's the nature of a book being like in a movie you always have like slow and fast moments right that's pretty natural and you can Mm -hmm. 
you can remove some of those, but when you're serializing it, that's really harder to do. And sometimes, like like you said, they could have brought Lin-Manuel Miranda in and done something really cool with him that would have made a, you know, otherwise kind of slow episode, at least entertaining. I think of it similarly to like, those kind of filler flashback episodes that anime will have. I'm like, okay, we don't really yeah. have a budget to do a whole lot of new like animation. It's mid season. We have to remind people of like what happened in the first half. But Avatar did a really good job of that with the Ember Island players episode in particular. Mm-hmm. They did it again with Korra. So it's like you can still do that and do something slightly different to make it entertaining um, for these yeah, slower episodes. And, you know, I mean, I guess like I two thoughts and, so Hannah, correct me if I'm wrong, but the book itself seems to kind of lend itself to a serial sort of multi-episode thing, because in the book, it's a series of kind of smaller micro adventures leading in, you know, nested inside this bigger adventure. Like they have the encounter with Ares and the encounter with the St. Louis Tower and and all these things, you know, things that can sort of be their own little episode and also i mean part of it is just the particular adventure is the lotus you know there's less action going on with the lotus it's the 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 struggle is they have to just not forget that they're in the or they they have to remember to be on the quest right Mm -hmm. um yeah so like in the i think it's telling like in the movie the what they did is they they turned the sort of final bit into like a chase scene where they're like running out and i think they like drive out of the casino in a car or something like that because it probably felt like some studio note that's like okay it's been x amount of pages we need some action to happen otherwise we're gonna lose people yeah jazz it up a bit Mm -hmm. i guess my question is too going with the lin-manuel thing is like it felt like he phoned it in on this one too yeah like he's he's dressed in a tan hoodie so what is his description no that that, that's fair it's like is that how he's described or did like lin-manuel just really like it's jam did he just walk in and what he was wearing like (laughs) hannah was lin-manuel miranda just dialing it in with a tan hoodie or like how is hermes actually described in the books what gets me about the tan hoodie is that, like, it's one of those pieces of clothing that you can so obviously tell is expensive. Yeah. But it's made not to look expensive, mm-hmm. which is what really gets me because if it was just a tan hoodie, okay, fine. Like, Hermes is kind of just like, first of all, he's not in the book, in the first book. And when he is described, he's kind of very much hanging out in, like, a mailman uniform uh-huh. type situation. I just, I wouldn't hate it so much if it wasn't one of those, like, clearly super expensive, nice clothing that, like, you just don't have a label on because wealth whispers or some shit like that. Um, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't hate it as much if if it didn't have that. He's not, not Hermes. I mean, I don't really have, like, there's not, like, a book Hermes was he in the movie? I thought Hermes had an appearance in the movie, too. It was Nathan Fillion in the second movie. He has a cameo okay. as Hermes, where I think he he's kind of more dialed in. He was a really good Hermes. Yeah, he's, he's kind of hamming it up. There's a couple references to Firefly, which is, you mm-hmm. know, I guess for the old people like me. Uh, and he's kind of in that same thing. He's in like a you. You're not that. He's old. in. Like, well, thank you. We know what Firefly um, is called. He's in like a like UPS outfit. Um, and then he changes into like a business suit. But I guess like this comes back to I guess my my sort of thing that I was was mulling over like a you know like a worry stone, which is the um like why Lin Manuel right? Why him? Why why do it right? What is it? And because it does kind of feel like it was a very toned down performance like was this cameo like what if it was if it was just some actor right would it have been different 
um, why did it have to be Lin Manuel? Like, what was he adding? Was he bringing weight to the story? Yeah. And if it was, it was yeah. lost. Even upon like, me, so, so the one thing I did like that was a really subtle hint of like what was going on in the ho- um in the hotel casino is that everyone was dressed in older decades clothing, but it looked like you know brand new clothing. It didn't look. Yeah, there's like there was a guy in like a checkered suit, right, or something like that, and mm-hmm. and. Yeah, people, the idea that people have been there since whatever, the 70s or the 80s, things like that. So, like, I, you know, it could have been really funny if he had dressed up in, like, a zoot suit or even dressed up as, like, Hamilton since he's making fun of, like, time and space. And Lord knows Disney owns all time, ta- all Hamilton time and space. costumes at this point. Well, yeah, I mean, it reminds me, I don't know, because the other thing, I don't know if either of you saw the Golden Compass on the HBO Max, that series, because he's also in that. He's a, as Lee Scoresby, which is another interesting choice because it just sort of, I mean, I think there's more to that performance that's just a different Lee Scoresby as opposed to sort of in the books that char- the character is kind of like a grizzled, kind of jaded cowboy. Like he's described as kind of like an old, worn down sort of traveler. And then Lin-Manuel, you know, his the energy that he brings to stuff usually is like vibrant and enthusiastic and like try hard like he's got the kind of try hard theater kid energy mm-hmm. and here it was very he who was again he was like a a sort of i guess sad single dad is kind of the vibe like there was a there was a sad energy to the whole to the whole thing or or a sort of world weariness maybe yeah he did nail the sad single dad act yeah mhm Oh, there's this moment I really like where he's like demigods and like they kind of like take a couple steps away and suddenly like whatever noise was going on in the other room kind of sounds like they just like close like a soundproof door or something. Mm-hmm. I thought that was very, that very much felt like the god aspect of these modern gods that are just kind of hanging out. I really, that was an aspect I really liked. Yeah, I think. The other thing that I've always been curious about, so Hermes does not actually make a physical appearance in the books for the the Lotus Casino, right? No. They they go in not knowing that the Lotus Casino, like, none of them even pick up on it. Okay. Um, In the books. So they just go in and then they come out and they realize, oh, fuck, it's like a day before the solstice, what's happened? And then they put it together like, oh, Lotus Hotel and Casino. Yeah. Were they, and they weren't sent there to find Hermes? No, they were just, um, they just came by, basically. So that that might answer more questions than not. Like, I think that's where the most of the discussion is going to be interesting is like, why do we think they felt the need to part Hermes in this location and make this connection of like him being in charge of like time and space, which isn't necessarily wrong. But it's not like the general sense I usually get of him. Honestly, when I was going for ancient sources background for today's episode, I was doing more like research on what casinos do in order to get you to stay as long as possible and spend as much money as possible. The way they're like designed like labyrinths, the way everything's designed to sort of attract your eyes or like lead you away from the exit and the free drinks. There's mm-hmm. no clocks. You they set up the bathrooms instead of near like entrances. They set them very far inside the casino, so you have to like travel through it. Yeah. Um, they restrict your views of the outside world. Yeah, anytime you have to go anywhere, you have to be able to see like five different gaming things or something mm-hmm. like. Yeah, the metaphor is right there, right? That it's sort of designed to entrap you and make you forget about time and yeah. where you are and care and concerns. The VR. I like the addition of the VR for this one as well. Is it like another like? time wasting thing like because again your senses are so closed off into this particular space that's 
like more and more unnatural and the more unnatural the setting, the more time you waste in it. Um, but the funny thing mm -hmm. is the whole idea of like, the, like not eating the lotus blossoms, but having it pumped in the air, that is something that not necessarily casinos do, but a lot of other businesses have started doing to promote people spending more money at stores. So like a really famous one is Cinnabon. Cinnabon specifically like builds um, it's kitchen and oven so that the smell of the cinnamon rolls so you smell the can cinnamon. go through. Mm -hmm. And like there's now companies that actually sell smells to different businesses that has increased sales. So they say like the Hard Rock uh, Cafe Hotel in Orlando pumps out artificial scents of sugar cookies and waffle cones that act as aroma billboards to draw people to their ice cream shop in the basement. So again, making you go through like most of the store and it's increased their sales by 45%. So like this weird combination huh. of it being a space that you just lose track of time and money apparently. So it's interesting they removed the money aspect, but that's what the casino is all about. And like the Lotus Eaters, it's, it's only got this brief mention in the Odyssey. It, Herodotus talks about where the location might be and everything. It's just an island of people who get high. Yeah, it's it's, you know, for one of the more famous scenes from the Odyssey, it, it's, it comes and goes in a matter of lines. It's just a yeah. thing Odysseus kind of recounts as he's giving a sort of overview of his travels. And he's like, yes, and then we went here and then there were the lotus blossoms and they made the people forget and then we kept sailing. Like it's, it's you know, quick. And it kind of reminds us again of the, the whole point of legends is, you know, it's it's presented as historical fact, right? Like this is how people of the ancient world were mapping out the world and what they knew of it and Herodotus is almost more fun for this getting to read his descriptions of faraway places and what he thinks people do in those places but um the odyssey does that a bit as well so that's it that's that's all i've really got for ancient background sources and today um and the losing of time so i guess yeah my big question to all of us then is why stick Hermes here? I do have the talk that they have. So I'll play that real quick. Why have this talk in particular in that setting? So here it is. I remember you. You were there. Last time I saw Luke. Yes. I saw you argue. I heard what he said. That what happened to his mom was your fault. That it was all your fault. That he hated you. Help us get to the underworld. Help us retrieve Zeus's master bolt from Hades and he'll see that you care. There is a way into the underworld, a secret way. I've helped others find it before. And do you know what happens every time? I mean, every single time. You don't want my help, trust me. No, we actually kind of do. I was warned to stay away from Luke and his mother. Warned that no matter how much I tried to help, I would just make things worse. And I went anyway. And it wasn't just awful for Luke. It was awful for all of us. Do you know what that feels like? All right, so I'll leave it there. Hannah, I need some, some background on the Hermes-Luke relationship. Because, I, I mean, we do know that Luke is the the lightning bolt thief originally and that he's going to ultimately be the one to betray Percy. What is his daddy issues? Please let us know. Well, he has daddy issues just like the rest of us. Although I will say this, the show is kind of like aiming for like sympathetic daddy issues. Like, oh, daddy suffered too. And I kind of hate that. Parents are shitty. Let them be shitty. Let those shitty parents be shitty parents. I'm not interested in- are getting a lot of passes, aren't they? 
Poseidon and now Hermes. Yeah. Like, oh, daddy secretly loves you. It's hard for him to No, daddy's a god. Um, It can't be that hard. Maybe I'm just like unsympathetic towards parents in general. The beef between Luke and his dad, Hermes, it's basically like the thesis statement of the books, which is that like, you can't be a shitty parent because it has repercussions on your children. Luke's, I know what they're doing, basically, with seeing Hermes in the casino. It was the only way they could, it was the only place they could like see to shoehorn him in. Hermes's relationship with Luke's mom, May, is very important. In the last book, it's about like, she knows that she can't be with him forever, but she wants to like stay in this world, this godly world, so she can stay near Luke as well. So she's like, ooh, why don't I become, why don't I like attempt to become the Oracle of Delphi? which is a cursed position, kind of like um, Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher. Okay. Um, so she decides, like, she'll try to become the Oracle, but it drives her insane. And so that's why Luke can't stay at home. He has to, like, leave because, you know, his mom's crazy now. Womp womp. Yeah. And they kind of allude to that, or they mention, I think, the explanation in the show is that she's a seer and she's mm-hmm. a regular person who can see into the godly world. And it, for most of them, that kind of drives them insane and then so there seems to be some kind of yeah problems with with luke's mom that he blames his dad for and i agree with hannah that it felt like the reason the sort of overarching reason that he's here in this episode at this time is to work in this character to sort of get because like he's absentee i think in the first book there is no hermes we don't hear we don't meet him directly at least and so to get hit you know to get sort of that character in there and put a name and a face to it and get their little spiel about the thing that seems to be the kind of narrative function and it might be a case where like the sort of stitches are showing most obviously yeah i mean like from an outside like no familiarity with the books seeking out hermes to get to the underworld actually makes a ton of sense because he's the psychopompus right so like if anyone's going to know how to get there it's going to be hermes yeah literally the soul messenger is like what his title is that he gets among others but that's a big yeah. one mm-hmm. yeah so like that totally made sense to the point of this whole begging hermes to help him refusing and explaining his reasons and then showing Percy something, a flash of something to like make him question. It looks like to make him question his relationship with his mother or his father. Like I'm sure that's going to pay off in the next episode. So, you know, it makes it feel like Annabeth got one up on him by like stealing the keys, but then it's very obvious he knew what they were doing. And so he leaves the letter on the car for to the dumb kids right so it's it's like it was all really contrived but like he also lets them go but not in the amount of time that they actually need to prevent the war that's breaking out like they miss the meeting with poseidon in santa monica by the end like that's that's the end of the episode right Mm -hmm. well it's well they say they also have missed like the deadline to return the bolt Right. Um, yeah. Which is off script from the book. So um, they've got four pearls and they've already missed the solstice. So I don't know what the fuck we're doing. Um, we are going off road. It's like on the one hand, yeah, if you're just trying to get to the underworld, it makes perfect sense to go find Hermes. But I don't get what Hermes was trying to accomplish in all of this. We also saw Kronos again, right? Is that correct? Yes, we did. Percy's just telling people about his dreams willy nilly. <laughs> what, are you, like, what are you doing he's supposed to doubt himself a little bit at least that's part of the charm i don't know i share my dreams when they're weird so like okay i used to keep it i used to keep like a like a journal i haven't done it in a while but i used to keep like a running list because i'd always forget them like soon after waking up so i'd have to mm-hmm. grab them right in the moment i do appreciate that percy jackson is a kid who knows he doesn't know what's going on and so he's here to ask questions to figure it out 
And like, even when he ends up feeling stupid, because I think we saw that, was it this episode or the previous episode where like Grover and Annabeth have already kind of figured out what's going on? And Percy's like, yeah. so I think this. And they're like, yeah, man. <laughs> he was like, well, how was I supposed to? <laughs> I'm just putting it all together. So I appreciate that. Like, he's a very um, happy learner, I will say. Like, he he's asking questions. He's he's always like, I think that's a really interesting version of him. I don't know how he is in the books. He sounds a little bit more. What's the word? Uh, Hot headed in Annoying. the books, maybe? Or like I would say drums. in the books. My read on the first book is I find him a little – I found him a little grating. I found him a little – there was a there was a sort of uh, – what's the word? Like an irreverent – not a reverency, but it's just like a sort of snarky but without charm. That was sort of how I described it. Um, okay. Where I'm like, this this kid sounds annoying. He just seems like he, – he's not funny. <laughs> um, and it's it's – yeah, it's it's sort of uh, flippant but without being funny. That was how – that was my reaction. Um, which is, again, what to come back to the actors, I really like the way – all of the three main cast are portraying this because they do are they're doing a really good job of riding the line of being endearing because this is these are performances that can so easily teeter into very very obnoxious smart ass tweens. And then they they did try to replace Poker Face. It was like they didn't even just play uh. Poker Face. They replaced it with Dua Lipa's um, Levitating, which I love Dua Lipa. Do I think she's the brand new Lady Gaga of our era? No, no. I mean, no. no, I did enjoy that album, but yeah, it was, it's like either Lin-Manuel needed to sing it or. Although I should, no, I think we should be maybe counting it. our lucky stars that we did not get a, that Hermes never rapped at any point. I think it would have been fun. I think the bloom is off that rose a little bit. I, I didn't need a rap. I needed a musical number. Cause you know what? Let's not talk about Bruno. Excellent song. He writes a good song. Why is there no music in this? Other than mm-hmm. Dua Lipa's levitating. Yeah, I think there should have been a heavier music preference. Brooke did say in like an Instagram post or something that he was not going to be doing Poker Face because he wasn't going to be referencing those movies. Um, yeah. Because he hates them so much. I, I had this question. It's like, what are your guys' experiences with casinos and or Vegas itself if you've been to? Never been. Oh, yeah. I don't like gambling either. And somehow I've been to Vegas twice and both times is just like, I really liked the line from Grover when he was talking mm-hmm. to Augustus of like, why would Pan be here? Yeah. When this is like one of the most unnatural. My impression uh, of Vegas is the way I sometimes describe places. I have this spectrum where cities and towns or whatever are, are some are real places and some are not real places, right? Real places are places where actually people live and work. And not real places are places like Vegas where nothing really feels real and everybody who is there is not sort of from there. And it's just this kind of like imaginary fantasy land. And so, yeah, Vegas is the epitome of unreal to me. Uh, The last time I went, Mm -hmm. we went to the Venetian to grab food. They have like an area that's completely enclosed, but it's like it's super tall and it's mm-hmm. meant to look like you're outside at the San Marco Square. And it was like we were at a restaurant. We ate food there and it was very delicious Italian food, a delicious Italian wine in the most artificial like mm-hmm. Italian setting I've ever been in. And it's 
it's really jarring. So I thought that was kind of mm-hmm. cool. And you're inside, but you're outside, and it's that whole like it's reality. Yeah, yeah. It, it it does feel like yeah. you're in a sort of fever dream. Uh, but I was also gonna say it would make like because Grover's asking, well, why is Pan here? And I'm like, well, that kind of makes sense if Hermes is there because Pan's his son. So like maybe he's he is hanging out in Vegas. But apparently Hermes wasn't supposed to be there either. Now I have a, actually a question, mostly for Hannah, but about like, do they ever? find pan in the books or, or is he always they do. is he a big hanging okay so he's not just this big hanging question mark i mean I, there is a tradition that pan is the one god who actually dies like there are all these stories this, the line that gets wheeled out is the great god pan is dead mm-hmm. and supposedly you know it's like there's a date for it and like pan actually did die of all the gods that i guess that's the sort of inspiration for this bit so the missing pan and trying to find him again yeah they do find him they find him in the third book oh, got wow. it and okay. then grover he's like uh I can't, I can't remember too well what happens. I do know that for some reason he's like, oh, I can't stick around. But you, Grover, you are now Lord of the Wild. And then that's what Grover ends up doing. He becomes the Lord of the Wild. I will say Grover finally saved a damn animal this episode. <laughs> and that was the, the other moment I really liked. He's like, oh, don't worry. The animals will be fine. I gave him my blessing. He's like, what about the humans? And he's like, oh. Well, the animals will be fine. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> I liked that moment. It's like, yeah, yeah that's from the book. did something. Oh, well, it's not directly from the book, but like the um, the Seder's blessing so they can find sanctuary and the, until they can find sanctuary in the wild. That is from the book. Um, I liked it a lot. It was a really, it was a really good moment for Grover. Yeah. So I was like, huzzah, they finally let Grover do something. And he has finally accomplished something. Unlike, I don't know, I guess Annabeth stole Hermes keys, but not really, but sort of. And that's I, it. I appreciate and her. I, I get the sense that like we're also we're, we're, we're grasping a little bit here because this episode, I think, of all the ones so far, this is maybe one of the thinnest episodes, just content-wise of stuff. It like is. we don't we we've introduced a lot of the major themes about parenthood, although Hermes kind of comes back on that, right? Where each of them is sort of independently struggling with their relationship to parental figures in various ways. Relatively new information was sort of brought forward. The plot advanced. Only somewhat, I guess. Yeah. Like I said, because it's in a serial, I, I don't have a problem with this episode existing. I wish, again, they would have done something more with – I honestly bring Nathan Fillion back just for – ah, but it's the movie throwback. I don't know. Because, like, I feel like they could have either cut this completely or – Bringing Hermes into the setting with very mixed motivations is just confusing and not necessary. Like, that's not how it was done in the book. So why introduce that here in the series? Unless they're feeling like they want to make Luke an even more sympathetic figure. That That's about the only other thing I can imagine at this point. They're definitely... Yeah, we're nodding our heads. Yeah, they're <laughs> definitely leaning into making Luke a much more sympathetic figure. They're setting up a lot of stuff that Book Percy doesn't really get around to even thinking about. But they're just like they're positioning it right there for us to all know. Like Athena is so shitty in this yeah. version. Um, yeah, it gets to like underscore that like there are no good gods or like none of the gods are good parents. Um, and to make you sympathize, except, yeah. Except maybe Poseidon. That seems to be the movie. The movie seems, to, or not the movie. Sorry, the show seems to be a little bit at odds with itself because one of the things that was sort of one of the stronger narrative through lines in the first couple episodes is that. Percy initially sort of rejects his divine parentage. Like the, the the foil between Percy and Annabeth is that Percy wants nothing from his his dad and is okay with that and then is all about his human mom. And for Annabeth, it's the inverse, right? She wants everything from her divine parent. 
and thus sort of walks away right and the buys into this sort of you know killer be killed dog eat dog sort of hyper competitive mm -hmm. darwinian nightmare that is the the godly world and then percy basically kind of explains that there can be another way and then i don't know maybe it will sort of come around and, and make sort of sense and, and and tidy up but sort of the introduction of poseidon as this benevolent absentee father seems to be sort of undermining one of some of the stronger thematic yeah yeah uh, moments of the, of the prior episodes yeah because yeah because that's the the whole kind of thing is that this the show is the one of the major through lines is it's about mythologizing your parents right it's about literally putting them up on pedestals and maybe you shouldn't do that and percy's more clear-eyed about it or the parent that he does idolize is the one that is more deserving of it i.e the one that stuck around yeah although that might get upended too like that seems to right. be what this is leading into and or maybe just it's a case of you know the thematic tones are, are sort of at odds with the source material because like in the books and correct me if i'm wrong but like poseidon does help by degrees well and like next episode is going to be the big one because it's supposedly where we're going to get the payoff with medusa's storyline too or at least a mm -hmm. revisit of it and i hope it pays off because like i'm still not fully sold on episode three with medusa yet because of what the end result will be it feels like it's heading a great direction with annabeth kind of reflecting and growing in understanding her relationship with her mother so it's like it feels like it might pay off um i'm really hopeful mm -hmm. of that which brings me to the question that i had saved from you from that episode colin was um oh. yeah this association between women and serpents i'd thrown out like what little i knew but um can you shed any more light on that for us Happily. So yeah, I think we were talking about this or we I, like I say like I was there. I was uh, <laughs> uh, parasocially listening in on the episode and contributing to no one and nothing but the sort of feminine serpent thing. And so there, I have like two basic sort of answers as I thought long and hard about it. And that is one snakes come out of the ground and two snakes shed their skin. Mm -hmm. And so the coming out of the ground thing, there's a big theme and a lot of uh, particularly with goddesses that all kind of you know, one of the one of the kind of modern, I think, sort of misconceptions about ancient divinities is that they're all kind of they are in their respective lanes and they're the god of this and then this other person's the god of this. And they're sort of schematized that way. But really, they're all kind of swimming in this soup. And so there's a lot of things that kind of shift back and forth. And one of the bigger trends is that a lot of uh, female deities and mother figures are so strongly associated with the earth. So like Gaia and Hera and Demeter, all of them are kind of pull from the same sort of bag of symbols and one and thus sort of by extension they're very closely associated with serpents part of it is probably rooted in the facts that snakes like when they hibernate they kind of tunnel down in and then in the spring they emerge and there's examples of like omens and prophecies and like herodotus for example where a bunch of snakes will come out of the ground all at once or if you're ever in canada every spring there's actually a huge gathering of garter snakes where they all come out of hibernation at once and so there's thousands and thousands of them all just kind of like covering cool. the ground that's so cool yeah but so anyway so snakes there's anything associated with the earth in greek mythology often gets attached to snakes so underworld deities very often have snake things like the furies have snake hairs cerberus sometimes is depicted as being covered in snakes uh so fertility goddesses and earth related goddesses they often are sort of associated with snakes or they create sort of snake monsters like echidna or hera sends two snakes to kill Hercu baby hercules and so that's part of it there are for example some early kings of athens who are said to have been born out of the ground and they er have like erichthonius right or yeah erichthonius and Cree crops are both kind of depicted as having snaky parts so anything having to do with the earth and then by extension 
fertility and femininity is often is also kind of taps into that matrix of snakes. The other half on kind of the sort of related to the fertility thing is that snakes were also there was a tradition that snakes are immortal, kind of having to do with the fact that they can shed their skins. And mm -hmm. so, for example, there's a there's a myth um, that pops up in the candor about that humans were supposed to get immortality and then Prometheus or Epimetheus, they gave immortality to a donkey. He was supposed to bring it to people. And then the donkey got tired and thirsty on its journey and then stopped at a spring. And there was a snake in the spring that said, I will let you drink from my spring if you give me whatever you're carrying. And so that's how snakes got immortality, not us. So there's a, also a tradition that they, so they come out of the ground. They're kind of associated with their fertility. They're also immortals. So they're associated with healing and healing cults. And then also, lastly, possibly having to do with drugs and medicine like pharmaca because they are potentially venomous. So that all puts us in this sort of kind of general soup of like fertility and medicine and youth and rebirth and all that stuff. Hence the snake goddesses, basically. Yeah, that's really interesting because that all had to be like archaic or earlier because, of course, eventually, you know, fifth century, you get the rise of Hippocratic mm -hmm. medicine as well as uh, cults to Asclepius, mm -hmm. who is the male healing go god and everything. So I think that, yeah, that's that's kind of the, the short version. Shorter, it wasn't short at all. But... No, it was pretty good. It was, it good. was pretty good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, in, in tr attempts to keep this short and sweet, are there any final thoughts that you guys have about this episode? I was going to say, I really like two things. Well, I guess three things. Um, they did change how Iris messaging works from the books, mm -hmm. um, but we do see it. Slay. I thought it was really funny when they didn't need to hit us over the head with Luke being like, oh, you guys are like an old married couple now. We get it. Person Beth is endgame. Like, you know, you don't need to... You don't need to throw it at us. Mm -hmm. But I did like when Percy was like, not to change the subject, but I'm gonna. And then just like change the subject. I thought that was funny. And then I liked when Grover was like, did you read the Odyssey as a kid? And he was like, the graphic novel. And Annabeth was like, huh? Yes. And he was like, that counts. It does count. Thank you, King. Oh, it totally does. That, gra that graphic novel is pretty good. Uh, so. Yeah. Yeah. I love yeah. that. Hey, if this... you absorb the material that gets you to read go for it. Mm -hmm. Graphic novels are awesome. So I have a lot, I have an unformed thought about sort of one of the things about this franchise that I find very interesting is compared to other sort of fantasy or sci-fi genres where it may be riffing off like say mythology or history or whatever it is. But in here, because they're actually doing it, they're actively recreating stories. So you get into a situation where like, I know this story. I know the secret to, I know how to defeat Medusa. I know how to defeat the Lotus Eaters. You know, everything is repeating itself. It kind of creates this interesting conundrum where like you run it. I think I talked about this when we talked about the movie where like the way that kind of knowledge gets deployed is very idiosyncratic in the movie where sometimes they know exactly what myth they're in and sometimes they have no idea what they're doing. Yeah. And in this one, they seem to always be sort of on the up and up. But, you know, you get the situation where like we know the deal with the Lotus Eaters, right? We, we, mm -hmm. we, we, we know the stakes. It, in some ways, it almost like it sort of takes away the thrill of discovery. Yeah, um, But I it agree. also creates this like, you know, the show becomes everything becomes mimetic. It becomes repetitive or becomes, everything just starts the stories start repeating itself because you're in this like infinite Ouroboros fractal loop of like I'm in the story, I'm recreate, but I know I'm in the story. And then that puts me more in the story. And then that's, you know, it's like the it's like one of those like an isekai anime things. Yeah. And like you just keep zooming into the TV like infinite amount of times. Yeah, that was something we kind of saw with the last episode, too. Yeah. Come back to me on when we get to the sort of final wrap up and I might have something more coherent sort of to say about that. Like, I think that's my big question, too, is like, who's the audience for this? Like, it is definitely an improvement on the movies. 
I like some of the changes that they're making from the books that were problematic in the original book, like the description of Hephaestus being like a really simple example. But Mm -hmm. like, I'm really confused in terms of Middle Eastern in the books, I think, or she has a head covering. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I guess it's like, is this for, are they trying to get the nostalgia Gen Z people? Are they trying to get millennials? Like we've had some response from like millennials our age or like maybe my brother's age, but older with Gen X of like loving the series because it was something they experienced with their kids loving and other kids have outgrown it. And now they're like watching the series by themselves. And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. Um, And I'm just trying to think of like, who is it trying to catch exactly? Because I, I don't know anymore. This isn't an answer to that question specifically, but something I think a lot about is that my kind of, blanket thing is is i would argue i think we are in the sort of hellenistic age of popular culture today what i mean by that is there's this period in greek history where essentially the fans start creating the art and then literature takes this kind of inward turn where it starts becoming incredibly everything is a comment on the thing before it in order to make any sense of it you have to have been steeped in this whole literary tradition you need to sort of be aware of all the references a lot of it just becomes to it gets to the point of like who can make the deepest cut reference, who can make the most obscure illusion, how many different strands can you pull together? And then one of the criticisms of this whole period, I personally love it, but this is like this thing kind of disappears up its own aperture. I wonder like we're in this media landscape now where so often stuff doesn't just exist on its own. Like a movie doesn't exist sort of as its own. I mean, it can, but there's so much kind of coming in of just, we know that this is, larger ip right you may just have been expected to see other things before you see it um or just be aware like it's the 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 shows and the movies and the video games are like meta aware constantly of everything and they're sort of also they're dependent on the audience also being kind of having this meta awareness you know it almost it's like sort of like in art like abstract expressionism where it only makes sense if you think about it as like a rejection of prior art styles. And so, yeah, it's like it only make it doesn't it only makes sense if you can sort of think about it in the larger context of the art form. I what I do hope is that like I really do hope that younger generations are really enjoying the series and watching it. And mm-hmm. because we need more people in the field. I wonder if if also maybe like a positive example as I'm just thinking out loud about this. And I know we were supposed to be wrapping up the show and I'm actively fighting against that. But the, <laughs> it's hard to keep it short for sure. Yeah. But the sort of like I think of like like the Taylor Swift Eras concert is, is like a yeah. good example where like you could potentially just go to the show, enjoy the music and know nothing, knowing nothing about Taylor Swift, which in some ways is impossible. But just like knowing nothing, you could just go and be like, that was a fun concert. But then there are these like secondary and tertiary layers of the show that sort of the fans are increasingly aware of, of the significance of the wristbands or when she mentions this thing or wears this outfit or has this sort of combination of this word with this image that opens up this like extra layer of meaning that you need to be sort of initiated into the I guess we'll say the mysteries um, Mm. for that to make sense Um, and this just seems to be a general cultural trend that's happening as media is democratized or ubiquitized it, it, it goes deeper and deeper into itself Especially in the era of streaming. That just makes sense, honestly. Yeah, and where everything is instantly available. I mean, also, there's a larger conversation with one of the things that made, you know, if this is all Hellenistic, it's like this period of Greek literature that's happening basically after Alexander. One of the things that makes that possible is the proliferation of writing and writing systems and paper and libraries and things like that. Like having that media available to people 
that they can read and check and share and copy and do things like that is what makes the sort of meta-ness and the erudition and the maybe insularness or navel gaziness of the whole thing possible. So there is yeah. a technological component to it too. Nice. That was a great, honestly, a great way to sum it up. So if we're good, oh, are we, <laughs> we ready for outro, y'all? I'm good. Yeah, yeah, walk us out, please. All right. Special thanks to Colin for joining us today. We'll be back next week to react and analyze episode seven of Percy Jackson and the Olympians with another special guest. This time, we'll get to see our young demigods travel to the underworld, a catabasis, if you will. Plus, we'll be getting that throwback to Medusa. Hopefully, it'll pay off. As for you listeners, you can find us on most major streaming platforms as well as movieswedig.com. Please review, subscribe, and like if you like what you hear. You can also follow on Instagram, Facebook, and Blue Sky under some variation of the handle at Movies We Did. Let us know what you thought of Lin-Manuel Miranda playing the trickster god Hermes. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.